The following episode was recorded before March 2024, and while the content shared is valuable and useful, it features Rob, who is no longer involved in the business. Hey, it's Rob and Kennedy. Hello, today on the Email Marketing Show, we're talking to Nir Ayel, former Stanford lecturer in marketing. He's done like two best-selling books, which you probably heard of, called Hooked and Indistractable. And he's joining us from Singapore, which we'll get into that in a moment. And we're going to be talking about actually getting shit done. Now, the biggest reason people tell us that they're not doing the email marketing they know they should be doing is because they get distracted and they don't know how to get motivated to do it. So we've asked the best person in the world to talk about that on today's show. Now, just before we get into that, if you would like to get our list of the top 10 books we recommend to improve your email marketing, and interestingly, a lot of them are not email marketing books, that's one of the resources that you'll find just by heading over to emailmarketingheroes.com forward slash resources. Go and check it out. He wants a nose piercing, but he thinks he'll get bullied for it, probably from me. It's comedy hypnotist Robert Temple. And he once used his Facebook page as ID to buy a drink in Nashville. It's psychological mind reader, Kennedy. So come on then, let's chat about this because either the security in Nashville is a bit lax uh, or you did something very clever. Well, what happened was, I knew that in the States, I was on tour, right? And uh, I knew in the States, like, ID's a big thing. You go to a bar, even if you look 72, they need ID before you even buy a vodka, right? Because yeah. they're all crazy about it because the laws and stuff, right? So I get, we get in this taxi, I'm staying in this hotel. I get just outside the bar and I realise I've left my passport in the hotel safe. So I thought, well, I'll just be British and charming and stuff. And turns out that doesn't work. I had to whip out my Facebook page and say, look, that's, that's really me. Now, you realise that you can choose any date of birth when you sign up for a Facebook account, right? That's well, not, like, I, legally I, issued. I realised this, but luckily, the lo- lovely young lady behind the bar in Nashville, I don't know where it was in Nashville, I'm not going to name anyway, but uh, d- didn't realise that. Because this is an interesting thing. I'm running ads right now for one of my hypnosis things, and I'm, I specifically want people over the age of 18 to apply for this thing because of hypnosis. And um, mm-hmm. there's people commenting who are clearly, like, at school and, like, 13. So they've gone in and they've set their, their date of birth to be 1960 seven or something <laughs> and it's straight you look through. great for your age love look at you <laughs> <laughs> what skin you've got hello this is the show where we give course creators coaches and membership site owners everything that you need to use psychology driven email marketing and be the email marketing hero of your business with a brand new episode every email marketing wednesday mate it's just wednesday nobody gives a shit it's just wednesday <laughs> Yes, this week's episode is sponsored by ResponseSuite.com, the survey, quiz, and application form tool that integrates with your email marketing systems so you can make more sales. You can go and grab a 14-day trial uh, for $1, just a single solitary dollar, over at ResponseSuite.com. Okay, Rob, in the wings, we have Nier, obviously, and uh, one of these three things is true about him. The other two things I've made up. Uh, full disclosure, two of these things are absolutely not true about Nier at all. One of them is, Nier, please keep a straight face. Rob's going to try and figure out which of these three things is true. Was he almost cast as a villain in a Fast and Furious movie? Did a member of the British royal family uh, hold open a door for him? Or did he almost get hit by a skydiver whilst he was in a plane? Well, this is this is good. Uh, just uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> dot, uh, 
<laughs> I've never even thought of that before. Uh, so I don't think it's the first one. I don't think he was almost cast as a villain in a Fast and Furious movie. I've never seen any of those 64 or however many films there are. Uh, so I don't know. I don't even know what they're about other than fast cars. Uh, a member of the British royal family held a door open for him. Nears had a, a really good career. I can imagine he could have met met the royal family here in the UK and uh, and they all seem quite polite to open doors and things you never know that's possible almost got hit by a skydiver whilst in a plane i'm sure don't skydivers only jump from levels that are lower than like commercial planes i'm sure that's not gonna happen i'm gonna go for the british royal family fact who knows let's find out near which one's true the third one what almost got hit in a plane (laughs) by a skydiver because you see that you you were you were right that is true so we've close but i wasn't in a commercial plane i was in a private plane oh see I even thought they would fly higher. I suppose they've got to take off, though. Yeah, <laughs> all planes, yeah, so all planes would, are low before they're high. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, so they they actually. So I was uh, I was doing a, what's called a cross country trip. It's like a long distance uh, haul when I was getting my private pilot's license, and this was a long time ago. I was uh, uh, this was before the days of GPS. We used to have like paper maps that you put on your leg and you strap it to your leg and you like triangulate where you are with like a little calculator and this uh you know so you know like i I wasn't exactly sure where i was and when you look at these maps you know it's you know it's it's on your leg it's strapped to your leg so you can't see every detail and these are very complex maps and you can't zoom in because it's on paper obviously and there was this little tiny icon of a of, of a purple little parachute <laughs> over where I was flying, and I didn't I didn't I didn't pick it up because there's a million things on these maps, and I'm flying along and you know I'm chugging and um, all of a sudden I see I, I see this thing go whoosh right by my my left hand side, and then I, I see another one whoosh this like object you know fly out of space, and I look up and there's maybe uh, like a hundred you know, people flying out of an airplane, uh, <laughs> parachuting above me, and there's zero I can do. There's absolutely nothing. You're supposed to like listen into the 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 frequency to see if they're they're dropping any any parachutists. Uh, but I had the frequency one knob off. Like the one, you know, it's like you know the frequency is like four numbers, and I had it one off, so I couldn't hear anything. And uh, I just said a little prayer and put my head down and just kept flying. (laughs) Hilariously, on a different podcast somewhere else in the world, in a different universe, somebody else is saying, do you know, I almost got hit by a best-selling author in a plane. (laughs) I'm hoping that nobody from the FAA is listening right now. Oh, they're big fans of email marketing. They definitely are. One of the things that I know, talk about email marketing, let's drag it, kicking and screaming towards that. Um, One of the things that we know is, in fact, it's the biggest challenge I think we have as small business owners is we've got a lot of stuff to do. Mostly stuff we didn't want to do when we first started our business because we wanted to make our course. We wanted to teach our thing and we want to help people. And then we've been lumbered with all of these additional things. We've got to do accounts. We've got to do product development. We've got to do bloody marketing. And part of that is is getting on and, and getting our fingers on the keyboards, as we call it, and, and getting on with doing email marketing. And what, what's one of the... You, you've done a lot of research and a lot of thinking around what stops us from initially doing the thing. I, I think as we'll start there. So why are we so resistant and how we can we reduce that resistance? 
Right, right. So I want you to know, first of all, that I wrote this book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, not because I had the answer, but because I was looking for the answer. I was just about the most distracted person you've ever met. I, I would say, oh, I'm definitely going to start exercising today, but I wouldn't. Oh, I'm going to start eating healthfully, but I didn't. I'm going to spend more time with the people I love and not be distracted when I'm with them, but that wasn't true. I, I'm, I'm definitely going to work on that big project at work today. I'm going to you know, send out those leads. I'm going to work on that blog post. I'm going to finish that number one thing on my priority list that I've been procrastinating, uh, but I do everything but the thing I said I was going to do with my time. And so that's when I asked myself, really, why is this? Why is it that despite knowing what to do in all areas of our life, not just with our business, why don't we follow through? And, and look, if your life, if you are achieving everything you want to achieve in life, if you're reading the books you want to read, you're spending quality time with the people you love, you're not distracted, you're getting everything done you want at work, maybe this episode isn't for you. But if you're like I used to be, where you know what you want to do, and yet it's not getting done for one reason or another, and it seems like the world is so distracting, and it's this and that and the other thing, and you're not doing the things you yourself know you should, then you had the problem I had, which was knowing what to do. I mean, the problem today is not that we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. In this day and age, all the information's on the internet. Right? <laughs> like if you don't know how to, who, who doesn't know how to lose weight, right? We, we know who doesn't know how to grow their business. You can Google it, you'll find the answers, they're out there. It's about following through. It's not that we don't know the answer, it's that we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. So how do we tackle this problem? The first thing we need to understand is what, what are we talking about here? It's what, what is distraction really? The best way to know if you understand a term is can you identify the antonym? What's the opposite of that word? So if you ask most people what's the opposite of distraction, they'll say it's focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But that's not exactly right. You see, the opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction, traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that pulls you further away from what you said you would do, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is actually super important because I would argue that any action – can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought, okay? Forethought. How many of us sit down on our desk and we say, okay, I'm gonna get to work. I'm not gonna procrastinate. I'm not gonna delay. Nothing's gonna get in my way. I'm gonna work on that big project that I've been delaying. I'm gonna write up that perfect email. I'm gonna work on my, my marketing. Here I go. I'm gonna get started right now. But first, let me just check my own email account for a quick sec. Or let me scroll that Slack channel. Or let me do a hundred other things. Let me do that easy thing on my to-do list. We can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your productivity in just a bit. Let me do all that other stuff first, right? Because I'm being productive, right? Aren't, aren't I doing work-related tasks? I'm still being productive, right? Well, this is the most dangerous form of distraction, the distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your business and your career and your life forward. So anything can be a distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time. Conversely, anything can be traction, right? You hear these chicken little tech critics moralizing and medicalizing, telling us, don't play video games, don't go on social media, don't use technology, throw away your iPhone, rubbish, silly, ridiculous. If you want to do this stuff, it's great. There's nothing wrong with it as long as you do it according to your values and according to your schedule. Now it becomes traction. Okay, 
So now we've got traction and we've got distraction. We've got this dichotomy. What prompts us to these actions, traction and distraction? We have what we call triggers. There are two kinds of triggers. Your community, you know all about external triggers. These are calls to action. Right? These are things that tell us what to do next. The pings, the dings, the rings, anything that tells us what to do next in our outside environment. But it turns out, even though that's what people blame for distraction, they say, oh, you know, I wanted to put together my email marketing campaign, but ah, my phone rang and I got distracted. Well, that's an external trigger, but that's only 10% of the time. Get this, studies find only 10% of the time that we get distracted is it because of an external trigger. What's the other 90% of the time? It's not what's happening outside of us. It's what's happening inside of us. These are called internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Fearfulness, uncertainty, boredom, loneliness, stress, anxiety. These are these uncomfortable emotional states that we look for distraction to take our minds off of. And so the first step, the most important step to becoming indistractable is to master these internal triggers or they will become your master. So no matter if it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, it doesn't matter. You are going to get distracted unless you start with this first step of identifying those internal triggers and having arrows in your quiver ready to go so that when you feel that emotional discomfort, you know what to do about it as opposed to running away from that discomfort with distraction. So now we just work our way around those four points. Number one, master internal triggers. Number two, make time for traction. We can talk about that. Hack back the external triggers. We can do all kinds of things to hack back these things in our environment. And then finally, prevent distraction with pact, which is where we make what we, we, we use what's called a pre-commitment device to prevent us getting distracted. So if you use these four big strategies, this is how anyone can become indistractable. Wow, this is amazing. Let's talk, talk about these triggers then and identifying what they are. Can we dig into that a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. So uh, in order for us to understand this mystery, I, I think it's a fascinating question. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? Uh, and by the way, this is not a new question or a new problem. In fact, Plato, the Greek philosopher, 2,500 years ago, asked this very same question. He called it akrasia. So it can't be that it's Facebook and our iPhones and you know that, that is not the source of distraction. That's what we call the proximal cause, not the root cause. The root cause has and will always be emotional discomfort. Why? Because discomfort is the source of all human motivation. If you ask people, why do people do what they do? They're gonna give you some version of carrots and sticks, right? That we all seek pleasure and avoid pain. Sigmund Freud said this, Jeremy Bentham said this, we've heard this a few times, right? Carrots and sticks. Neurologically, turns out we now know this is wrong. It's not true. We do not do what we do for the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but rather it's just one of those two. Everything we do, everything you do, is about the desire to escape discomfort. It's called the homeostatic response. So physiologically, this is perfectly obvious. If you go outside and it's cold, the brain says, ooh, this is uncomfortable. You should put on a coat. If you walk back inside, now it's too hot. The brain says, take your jacket off. If you uh, are hungry, you feel hunger pangs, so you eat. And if you eat too much, oh, you feel stuffed. That doesn't feel good. You stop eating. So those are physiological sensations. The same holds true for psychological states. If you're feeling lonely, check Facebook. If you're uh, uncertain, Google. If you're bored, oh, lots of solutions for boredom, right? We can check uh, sports scores, stock prices. Oh, the news. Let's watch the news so we can worry about somebody's problem 3,000 miles away as opposed to have to thinking about what's going on in our own heads. Uh, 
So understanding that this is the core driver, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. It's not a character flaw. It's simply that we haven't learned how to deal with discomfort in a way that moves us towards traction rather than distraction. I love it. I think one of the, one of the things you talk about in the book is, is a way of approaching those things rather than it being like this contempt-filled um, approach of like, why am I so distracted? Why am I so lonely feeling and, and all this sort of stuff? You talk about curiosity. And can we just talk about why curiosity allows us to th- consider things in a very different psychological state, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So people tend to bifurcate into two types of people when it comes to distraction. We call them the blamers or the shamers. The blamers, they blame stuff outside themselves. Ah, it's technology. It's uh, the news. It's, I hear this all the time, the modern world these days, (laughs) as if distraction is something new. It is not something new. (laughs) And blaming this stuff outside yourself does nothing for you. It's not going away. There's no time machine we can hop into that takes us to a time before distraction. It always existed and it always will exist. So blaming stuff outside yourself doesn't get us anywhere. The other type of person, this is what I used to do. uh, They're not blamers. We call them shamers. Shamers, we take it on the inside, right? There must be something wrong with me. I have a short attention span. I'm no good at time management. We make these myths up about ourselves. And of course, one of the cardinal rules that we've known for decades now in the psychology community is that we conform to our perception of ourselves. So when you tell yourself you are something, it's true. <laughs> you act in accordance with that belief. And so when you tell yourself, oh, there must be something wrong with me, right? Well, you, we, we, we shame ourselves. You elicit this uh, uncomfortable sensation of shame, which the solution to get out of that very uncomfortable feeling, we hate feeling shame. The solution to that discomfort is guess what? More distraction, right? Whether it's food or booze or football or Facebook, we're, we're going to find something to take our mind off of that discomfort. So blaming and shaming doesn't work. What works? Not being a blamer or a shamer, but being a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility not for how they feel. This is a really important lesson. You have zero control of your urges, You do not control your feelings and urges any more than you would control the urge to sneeze, right? If you feel the urge to sneeze, you've already felt it. You don't control the urge. You don't control your feelings. What you control is how you will respond to those urges and feelings, right? Hence the term responsibility. So if you feel the urge to sneeze, do you sneeze all over everyone and get them sick? No, you you take out a tissue and you cover your face and that's the responsible thing to do. And the same goes with our internal triggers with these uncomfortable emotional states. It's all about learning what do we do when we feel them. So feeling uh, indecisive or stressed or fatigued, perfectly normal, perfectly healthy emotions. And what, what we find is in studies of high performers is that the people who learn that that's not a bad thing, right? Getting curious about these sensations. We see this with entrepreneurs who have something to prove. They take that emotional discomfort and they use it as rocket fuel as opposed to running away from it and, and thinking, oh, feeling bad is bad, they realize that's not true. Feeling bad actually can spur us to action. It can make us better. It can be the rocket fuel that leads us towards traction. Makes so much sense. I think one Big of the really words, inter- yeah. I think one of the really interesting things is even once you've made a commitment to do something and then and then having that thing of why don't I follow through? Like recently inside our membership, the league, we've started this literally a few days ago. We've started this thing of saying, uh, we're gonna we're gonna hold you to account to send an email to your email list every single day and here's a spreadsheet with your name on it, with everyone else's name on it. You're gonna take the subject line of the email you sent and put it in there, and then not only you but us and everyone else taking part can see who's done it and who hasn't. And uh, after the first few 
few days, I've noticed there are a couple of people who still haven't done it. Like they still haven't haven't taken that action despite all of that accountability, despite the commitment to do it. So what what else yeah. is it that's stopping us from achieving that? So so what you've used is a, a very effective technique called a pre-commitment device that when I have that social accountability to say, I'm going to do this, I'm declaring to, to everyone on this list, this is what I'm going to do and, I, and you're going to hold me accountable to it. Uh, you're making a pact, a pre-commitment, and it's very effective. However, if you don't do the other three things first, you'll, you're going to have problems. <laughs> so making a pact, making a pre-commitment, that's the fourth and final step to becoming indistractable. There's, there's a few different types of pacts that you can make. Uh, what you've done is a social pact that's very effective. You can also have uh, a monetary pact. So the, the way I got into shape, I actually used to be clinically obese. And today, I'm, I'm not saying this to brag, but today I'm 43 years old. I have a six-pack abs. I've never. It's not because I have good genes. It's because I just consistently exercise and eat right. Is that why you do first time in my life? Is that why you do your podcast interviews with no shirt on? Is that what? Is that why? That's exactly I, right. I, yeah. <laughs> I just thought you might want to see it for yourself. Uh, you're going to get a lot of traffic on your, or hopefully, on your YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> don't don't come. It's not impressive. But I'm, again, I'm not saying that to brag. I've never been athletic my entire life. I used to be obese. But it just goes to show you the power of, 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 of doing what you say you're going to do. How did I do that? I made a price pact with myself, a price pact. I learned this technique from the most effective smoking cessation study in history. Okay, what did they do? The most effective smoking cessation study in history, people bet $150 that they would not smoke for six months as validated by a urinalysis test. And that turned out to be nine times more effective than the nicotine patches and the gum and the therapy. That was the most effective Smoking cessation intervention ever for this highly addictive nicotine. All you got to do is make people bet 150 bucks. <laughs> so I did this to myself to help me lose weight. I have a calendar that I keep in my dresser every day I see it. And on today's date, I have a crisp $100 bill. And above that calendar, I have a Bic lighter. And every day I have a choice to make. I call it the burn or burn technique. I can either burn some calories by going to the gym, taking a walk, going on a run, doing some push-ups, whatever it is, or I have to burn the money, like physically let the, you know, light the money on fire. And so that is a pack that I made with myself, a price pack to keep me accountable. Right, because my you know, say, so, oh, you could lie to yourself. Of course, I could lie to myself, but I'm not going to because it's that reminder of I made a promise that I, I'm going to do the activity. And you say, well, well, I couldn't burn the money. Of course, you're not going to burn the money. I'm going to do the 20 push-ups. <laughs> I'm not going to burn $100. And I've used it for over four years now. I've never had to burn the money. So the, a technique like the burner burn technique is very effective, unless you do it in the wrong order, because if I hadn't first figured out what are my internal triggers that prevent me from exercising, right? Exercise is hard work. It's not fun. I still don't like it, <laughs> but I had to get down to why don't I like it and how can I make it less bad, right? So I had to spend some time figuring out what are those internal triggers. I had to make time for traction. I used to say, oh, I'm going to exercise sometime today. It's on my to-do list and it wouldn't happen. Now it has a place on my calendar, right? So for, for this cohort of people uh, that you're helping with email marketing, what I would ask them is when are you going to do that? Not just what are you going to do, but when? Show me on your calendar. That's the only difference. That's the only way to know the difference between traction and distraction. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if it's not on your calendar, 
it's not a, you can't call it a distraction because what did you plan to do if you've got a bunch of empty white space? Everything is a distraction. You have to put on your calendar. Removing the external triggers, right? What's in your environment? Is it your kids, your boss, emails, Slack channels? What's going on that might prevent you from doing what you said you were going to do when you were going to do it? Then as the final step, then we implement the pact. Wow. Okay. That makes sense as to why so many of these accountability things just don't work. And I love that. Have you found any correlation between the, the, the gravity of the, the, um, the, what's the word I want to say? Can't think of the word. The, no, it's the, the consequence. That's the word I'm looking for. So Mm. for you, it's a hundred dollars burning it. Is there any correlation between the gravity of the consequence and whether it gets done or not? Because a hundred dollar note is one thing. Ten dollars is a is a different matter. Is it just the burning of money? That's the. Is it about the internal representation? How does that work? It has to be something that hurts for you, (laughs) for this thing. And again, disclaimer, warning, important. Do not jump to this technique without doing the other three. This technique does work. It is effective, but only after you've done the other three. What what you are risking is that some people, these two people who aren't doing what they said they were going to do, what we find is that some people, when they fall off the wagon, they can't get back on, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's that's terrible, right? Because then they start blaming themselves. They think there's something wrong with themselves. Well, it's just that they, they haven't set up the precondition to allow them to succeed, okay? So, but- if you do use this technique as the final last resort, right? As the, as the, as, you know, many times I talk to people who say, I, I, I just can't exercise or I, I can't follow through on that project or I, I just can't, you know, send those leads or whatever the case might be. I say, okay, let me ask you something. If I charged you $50,000, right? Give me, give me your bank account. I'm going to charge you $50,000 if you don't do that thing. You're going to do it? Of course I'm going to freaking do it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's $50,000. Okay, so we've established you can. Right. Right? There's no more I can't. We have established you can and you will if the incentives are big enough. So let's talk about how we find the proper incentives. First of all, do you really want this? Right? We don't want to guilt you into doing this. Is this something you want for yourself? Maybe it's not important, right? I I don't tell anybody how they should spend their time. If you don't want to exercise, if you don't want to, you know, grow your email list, if you don't want to grow your I don't care. That's your problem. But if it's something you yourself say you want to do, if it really is for certain something you want to do, don't tell me you can't because you can if the stakes are high enough. I love it. I think one of the things I want to just finish up by talking about is these to-do lists. And to get into that, I was wondering, what's your thoughts on, there's a classic philosophy of eat that frog, which is, anybody who doesn't know it, it, it's this idea that the one thing you don't want to do, like the biggest, ugliest, most gruesome thing you don't want to do that day, that's probably going to have the most impact. You do that thing first. How do you feel about the eat that frog with the research that you've been doing? It's a technique. It's not the only technique. And if that works for you, do it. Great. For a lot of people, I used to be like that for many, many years that I uh, used to write first thing in the morning. The, you know, Writing and researching is the most important thing I do. So that's what I used to do every single morning. But then I had a little problem. You see, I moved to Singapore and uh, I needed to take calls with the states in the morning. So I can't write first thing in the morning. So having this super rigid rule that, oh, I have to write every morning didn't work for me anymore. So what did I do? Now I schedule it a little later in the day. So the idea, I mean, it's, it's again, if, if it works for you, awesome, go for it. But if it doesn't work for you for one reason or another, like it didn't work for me because of life practicalities, having that time slot in your day, it's called time boxing. So by setting a schedule, by making a time box schedule that you know 
the day or week in advance. I do it once a week. Every Sunday night, I sit down, I plan my entire week ahead. And it gets easier. It takes me all of 15 minutes to do it. But I know how I'm going to spend my time for the week ahead so that I know the difference between traction and distraction so that it doesn't have to be the first thing in the day. Now I write in the afternoons and I do it because I use these techniques in concert to become indistractable. Okay. Okay. So to-do lists, what's your sort of thinking on that then? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about to-do lists. So to-do lists uh, are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Why is that? And if I, just to be clear, I'm not talking about taking things out of your brain and writing them down. That's actually great. The problem, what, what I'm talking about is running your life on a to-do list. If you wake up in the morning and look at your to-do list before you look at your calendar, you've made a grave mistake. Because to-do lists, what they do is reinforce a self-image of someone who doesn't follow through. Let me give you what used to happen to me all the time. I call this the tyranny of the to-do list. <laughs> I would work my butt off, feel busy all day long, come home from work and say, geez, I, I still have this things, things I haven't done. Right? I still have a mile-long list of things I haven't accomplished. Why? Because to-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more and more and more. So I'd have 100 things on this to-do list. I'd take a look at it after a hard day at work, and I'd feel like a loser because I didn't do what I said I'm going to do. So day after day, week after week, year after year, it would reinforce this myth that I had in my head that oh, I must not be very good with time management. Look, 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 I can't do what I said I was going to do. I was lying to myself day after day. So a much better method then keeping it, running your life on a to-do list is to make time for traction. That getting the stuff out of your head and onto a piece of paper or an app, that's great, but that's just step one. Step two, the more important step is when will you do that? <laughs> and you don't need to schedule you know, five minutes for every little thing. You can have you know, a block of 30 minutes for admin time and you put in all those little two five-minute tasks in there. But you know, if you don't have that time in your day, it's going to hang over you all day long. It's going to reinforce this, this self-image. And because it doesn't force you to make any trade-offs, it doesn't teach you anything about how much you can get done. What, what we have is what's called the planning fallacy. We know that people are terrible at planning how long at predicting how long something will take them to do on average a task takes three times longer than people predict okay why because we have no feedback right if you put something on your to-do list how long did it take you last time to do it no clue it's only by time boxing your day and planning out i'm going to spend 30 minutes on a such and such task do you have that feedback so what i want you to do is to stop measuring yourself by how much you finish, how many cute little boxes you check off. That is not the right metric. The right metric is to measure yourself by did you do what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction. That's it. Don't worry about finishing the task. Just measure yourself, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, doesn't matter. Did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Why? Here's the kicker. People who use that technique are more productive. They actually finish more than the people who use the to-do list technique. Why? Because they consistently work without distraction. That's it. amazing. And it, so, and it sort of makes me think of, I can never remember the name of the principle, but the idea that you, you will take enough time. If you're given 30, 30 minutes to do a task, you'll take 30 minutes to do the damn task. If you give yourself yeah, infinite right. amount of time, because it's got to be done at some point, then it will take bloody ages. Right. The Peterman principle, the work expands the time it's allotted to. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's why having constraints saying, look, I'm going to spend 30 minutes combing through all my email. If I don't finish, that's okay. Because tomorrow I can say, oh, you know what? I had too much time there. Let me give myself a little bit more, a little bit less, whatever the case might be. You're going to make that adjustment the day before, not in the moment in advance. I can that's already, key. 
I can already tell you this conversation is going to spur so much chatter between Kennedy and myself at our like meetings about how we do things and how we take stuff from Asana and turn it into project plans that actually get done and get done when we say they're <laughs> going to get done. And, and it's going to be so beneficial, I know, for our crowd who just think, I just want to get my email marketing done, get it on the calendar, figure all of this stuff out. I could have this conversation all, all day. This is so cool. Uh, however, let's roll <laughs> into pleasure. this week's... Subject line of the week. Subject line of the week. We're going to do this one a little bit differently because we don't have a particular subject line, but we want to talk about a really important element of subject lines, Nia, right? Yeah, exactly. So in thinking of this, I was you know, trying to come up with what's the best subject line I've ever seen. And, and I want to take it in a little different direction because I don't think it's actually the most important thing is the actual words you put in the subject line. I think the, the best subject lines are the ones that accompany an email that was sent from someone you trust someone you are glad to hear from. Uh, I have 125,000 email subscribers. I am not a genius email marketing. I'm sure you guys could identify a thousand things I'm doing wrong, but I have credibility with my readers uh, because we built a relationship. We built trust. We built a habit of interacting with each other. And I think once you have that that uh, that base, that foundation of a trusting relationship with the person you're sending the email to, uh, I, I, I think wordsmithing becomes less important. A hundred percent agree. This is something that we we do bash on about all the time. So I'm pleased you restated it from 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 your position there as well. Thanks for this week. Subject line of the week. Subject line of the week. Of course, um, we would like to know. Obviously, if anybody doesn't know where to come and find out more about the world of Near Al, where should we go and do that? Yeah, thanks. So my website is nearandfar.com. It's spelled N-I-R, like my first name. So N-I-R-and-far.com, nearandfar.com. And there's actually a workbook there that you can get. It's an 80-page complimentary workbook. Uh, whether you read the book or not, doesn't matter. You can get that on my website. It actually couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. So we, we decided to make it available as a PDF for free. And that's on my website as well. And the book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. This was such a valuable conversation. Thanks for being here, folks. If you want to continue this discussion about how this applies to you, what distracts you and what are you going to change about it? Make sure you come and join us and continue this conversation over in our free Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and look for the email marketing show community or you can hurl open your favorite browser like chrome or something and search for rob and kennedy.group and that will forward you over there Neeriel, everybody thank you so much for being on the show my pleasure thanks guys 